If you have your Bibles, would you now please open them to the book of Hebrews? And today we're going to be looking at Enoch. Now I had to work on the pronunciation of that because where I grew up, everybody called him Enoch. But if you want to do it the correct way, and the way that he would answer to and respond, it is Enoch. Enoch. And there's only one verse in the scripture reading today. And by the way, before I start, I do want to thank the two Dans for more than ably filling the pulpit while I was gone. It is a wonderful blessing to leave a church and go on vacation knowing that you will get good preaching. And so I'm grateful for that and thanks to both of them. Um, the passage that we're looking at this morning is Hebrews 11.5. And the question that we've been looking at every week as we go through the book of Hebrews is how can we live a life of power, of spiritual power? And the 11th chapter of this particular New Testament book tells us that the life of power, that is spiritual power, is the life of faith. Faith is the route to spiritual power. And this chapter gives us a series of character studies, or what I call case studies. And it shows us in each case how particular people were able to achieve that kind of life of power and faith. And the one we're going to look at today is one of the most mysterious Old Testament figures, Enoch. And in verse 5 of this passage, it says the following, Hebrews 11:5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that in your generosity and your abundance of grace that you would pour out your spirit upon us now as we look to your word for life and hope and strength and courage to empower us, to convict us, to correct us, to train us, to furnish us for every good work. And we do pray today that as you speak to us from this word, our hearts will be receptive and responsive Lord, we are hungry. Please feed us, nourish us, strengthen us. And we pray that as you do, we would be the first to give glory to you and you only. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're a careful student of Hebrews chapter 11, which I have tried to be, you're going to notice that the very first time something is said about faith here that's not said anywhere else. Because all the case studies start this way. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. Every one of these case studies starts by faith. And in every case, by faith is connected to an active verb. In other words, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, Noah built. By faith, we'll see, Abraham obeyed. But in Enoch's situation, it is a passive verb. By faith, Enoch was taken by God. 
In other words, this verse does not tell us what Enoch did by faith that caused God to take him. He certainly did something by faith, but we're not told what it was by faith. And it was because of this thing that he did by faith that God took him. Enoch is a very mysterious character because we know so very little about him. There are only three verses about him in the book of Genesis. And there are two others in the book of Jude referring to this mysterious character. And so it makes you wonder why would the writer to the book of Hebrews choose this particular guy to encourage the church in the first century? And why is he regarded as one of the great case studies of faith? Well, I want to tell you why. In Genesis 5, 21 to 24, just three verses, you see it says, Enoch walked with God. It says, Enoch was the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God and God took him. God took him right to heaven without him tasting death because he walked with God. Now what we have, if you put Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11 together, there's not much we know, but that's everything we know about Enoch. By faith, Enoch walked with God. That's what he did, and that's what's so special. And it's special, so special, that even there's, there's almost nothing told about Enoch in the Old Testament. The Hebrews writer latches onto him as one of the great and almost stunning cases in all of the history of the life of faith. So, what's so special about walking with God? What is so special about walking with God? And if you look up the word walk, you'll see that the very first time the word walk appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, and there we read this. It happened right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed and part taken of the forbidden fruit and it says then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God in the trees of the garden here's the garden of Eden Adam and Eve had just sinned they had just disobeyed and they heard the sound now I've often wondered what that sound was was God walking and singing, or was he walking and, and laughing, or was he walking and uh, talking? But they heard the sound of him walking. And they were, for the first time ever, afraid. And they hid their face from him among the trees in the garden. Now, what do we learn from that? Something amazing. We learn that in the very beginning of time in the original world, God took long walks with us every evening. Literally, the Hebrew says he walked in the garden in the breeze of the day, which is in that part of the country always in the evening. A breeze would come up and it would be in the evening. And we are told here that we used to take a walk with God every evening. Now, get the gist of this, please. This is God, the Lord God, the Lord of the universe who spoke into nothing and out of nothing created something called creation and ordered it in six days and formed it and filled it to his glory. This is the transcendent God, 
The God before whom we tremble when we consider who he is. The God that created it all. The God that holds it together with the word of his power. On the evening would come and say to his creatures, let's take a walk. Let's go for a walk. I want to hear what's on your heart and I want to tell you what's on my heart. And walking with God, we are shown the minute human beings disobeyed God, they couldn't stand intimacy with him anymore. They couldn't be intimate with the infinite anymore. Now, the moment we were estranged from God or alienated from God, we were estranged and alienated from everything else. Because immediately you see psychological estrangement. We're rootless, we're wanderers, we're full of fears. You see estrangement from creation. We're at war with nature now, and we still are. And you see us subject to disease and death, and we're estranged from our bodies. You see immediately in Genesis 4, killing and violence, and we're estranged from each other. And if you don't walk with God, you won't walk with anyone else. You'll be utterly alone. You won't even be able to walk with your own self. One of the popular things to do in the 60s when I grew up, oh, it's kind of electric that way. <laughs> Let me come over here. In the 60s, it was often almost in every movie that I saw made during the 60s, people had to go find themselves. You remember that? And so they would drop all responsibilities. They'd get on a motorcycle. That's why I love that TV show, Then Came Bronson. And he wore this crummy little toboggan on his head and drove this march. And he drove all over the West trying to find out who he was. Well, I could have told him in two minutes, but I wasn't there. And he's trying to find himself. Why is he trying to find himself? Because we've lost ourselves. That's part of the fall. I mean, that's a legitimate concern. It's not an illegitimate concern. We have lost ourselves. We're alienated not only from nature, not only from creation, not only from God, not only from others, but from ourselves. We're a mess. And we no longer walk with God. We're loners. And suddenly Genesis 5 comes along, and any objective reader, anybody reading Genesis and maybe has never read any other parts of the Bible, if you're just reading along and you get to Genesis 5 where Enoch shows up and you're suddenly startled because it says Enoch walked with God. In spite of all this, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, walks with God. And then, not only was that said, but then it says he was not. One day he's walking with God, and Enoch doesn't come back home. He's not aware, uh, around anywhere. And God took him, the scripture says. He was not, for God took him. And you say, what? Somebody can still walk with God in spite of all of this fallenness and estrangement and alienation? And you said, is that possible? Is it still possible to have the estrangement I have from all that it is so utterly healed that God actually takes me and I receive eternal life and I'm welcomed into the bosom of the Father? Enoch walked with God in the cool of the day and he's still walking with God in the cool of the day. How's that possible? That's the question and do you know what the answer is? 
The book of Hebrews just said it is possible by what? Faith. By faith. You can do it too. Now, walking with God is so seminal to everything else the Bible tells us about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian, that is, Christianity is not about a general belief of God. It's not about just being a generally moral person. Being a Christian is walking with God. It's walking with Him. God's not just an idea. He's a person. And a relationship with him is a personal relationship, and the Bible characterizes it as walking with him. Walking with God, therefore, has both an objective, that is, outside of us and a subjective, that is, something inside of us dimension. In other words, we walk in peace with God, and we walk in the presence of God, which are the next two points. We have peace with God, that is objective, the subjective, we have the presence of God. To walk with God is to walk in peace with him and his presence. And so we want to take a look at these two dimensions and then at the end show you how they're actually drawn together and how one leads to our issues in the other. So let's talk about peace with God for a moment. When it tells us Enoch walked with God and when it tells us we can walk with God, it's saying it means it's possible to be reconciled to God. That's the opposite of estrangement. That is the opposite of alienation. We can be reconciled to God. Now, you know what the word reconciliation means. It's when two f enemies are turned, both of them, and their relationship is renewed and they're brought together. And estrangement is removed and relationship ensues. And so it's possible. Now, the, the Semitic word to walk uh, is used constantly, not only in the ancient use, usage, but even today, the word walk means more than just to physically walk. It means to be in partnership with someone, and it means the hostilities are gone. Amos, in his book, says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Years ago, I worked on a freight dock, a union job uh, for trucks. I unloaded trucks, loaded trucks, drove trucks, operated forklifts, till I discovered that I had a mind and I <laughs> that I could do something else other than that. And it's good, honest work, and I don't blame people for doing it. It's hard work, and, um, but I did that for a number of years. And one of the interesting things I remember about that job was the workers would gather on the dock when we had a break or when the uh, supervisor was out of view and we had what we called bad supervisors and we had good supervisors. In other words, some of them we respected and we liked and we loved and we worked hard for and others um, we just did it because we had to, because we needed the job, we needed to make money to take care of ourselves and take care of our families, but we really did not like it. There was one particular supervisor, I'll never forget him, his name was Willie Brown. And Willie, he wasn't downtown Willie Brown, this is a real guy, Willie Brown. And I was working on a truck, I opened the back door of this truck 45 feet long and, and boxes hit me in the head and almost knocked me down. It was so full. And by, that was at 12 o'clock at night, and by 7.30 in the morning, I had to have that trailer emptied, 
and all of the freight in it, all the boxes in it, routed to particular trucks going through the city. Now, this is an unbelievable task. One of the supervisors I had, I won't call his name, he's probably dead now, but he used to come and just cuss you, and I had long hair at the time, and he would call me a long hair, no good hippie, and that's the nicest thing he ever said to me. But he was just, he was just brutal. He was hateful. He was despicable. I mean, there was nothing about the guy redeeming that I could see. And it didn't matter, you know, if you knocked yourself out, wore yourself out, got the job done, he'd never say a kind word to you. On the other hand, Willie Brown would come see your truck, and he'd go, that looks like a job. And I said, yes, it does. He said, looks like a job for more than one man. I said, yes, it does. He would get in the truck and help me unload the truck, the supervisor. I love that guy. I would work harder for him than anyone else because he engaged with me in that job. So good uh, supervisors walk with us, and that's exactly how the Bible uses the word. To walk means you're no longer adversaries, you're no longer hostile, but you are reconciled. And when Genesis 5 tells us Enoch walked with God or Enoch walked with God, it tells us something amazing. We're reconciled with God. Now, why do we need peace with God, and how does it come to us by faith? First of all, why do we need it? Because we are at war with him. Have you ever, ever seen that in your own heart, that you're at war with him? Now, very few people will ever out and out admit that, but let's look at this and see if it holds water. Why do we need peace? Because we're at war. Just the fact that Enoch walked with God means he is one of the great heroes of the faith. Walking with God is such an incredibly important thing because we are at war with him. And let me tell you how the war started. There's a war going on. And you won't understand walking with God until you understand there is a war going on. In fact, you won't ever even be able to walk with God unless you admit there's a war going on. Well, how did the war start? When Adam and Eve decided to disobey one of the things God told them, God must have told them thousands of things, but the one thing we know he did say was, do not eat that tree. And they disobeyed, and when they disobeyed, one of the directions, God gave them something much more fundamental and profound happened than just a violation of a general rule. Here's what I mean. Somebody tells you to do ten things. There are actually two things going on when they tell you to do ten things. Follow this closely. First of all, you have to decide your relationship to the directions, but you also have to decide your relationship to the person who's telling you the ten things to do. You could do those ten things because, because the person tells you and strictly because the person told you, or you could do those ten things because they make sense to you to do them. Even though both of those scenarios I've just mentioned would look on the outside exactly the same, underneath they are totally different in their motivation because you assume a different relationship to the person who does the telling. In the first case, if you do the ten things because the person told you, you have set up a relationship. You're the servant, and that person is the master. That person has the right to decide what goes on. But if you do those ten things because it makes sense to you, you are the master. And that person is, in a sense, an advisor, a counselor, 
a servant of yours. On the outside, two different approaches look very much the same, but underneath, they are fundamentally different. They're based on two different definitions of your relationship to the person. Now listen carefully. When Adam and Eve decided to disobey that one command, they didn't just disobey one command, there was a cataclysm. Our entire position in the universe changed. What they were doing was, they were saying, I can take you as an advisor, Lord God, but not as my king. You can't be my king. The moment they made that one decision, they'll say, I'll obey 999 other things you say, but not this last one. What they said was, I want mastery, I want kingship. Everybody knows when two parties claim the throne of the same spot, there's always going to be a war. And when two parties claim the same spot, there's war here. Not only did that happen with Adam and Eve, but looking at the Ten Commandments, every single time you and I are dishonest, every time you and I are impure, every time you and I are selfish, every time you and I disobey a commandment in any regard, or even if we arrogate to ourselves the right to decide whether or not we're going to obey, even if you obey, though underneath you've arrogated to yourself the right to determine whether or not you will obey, these things aren't just violations. They are coup attempts. Every act of sin is an act of sedition. R.C. Sproul called every act of sin cosmic treason. Every time you use your body, every time you use your mind or your tongue in a way that pleases you instead of the way that pleases the expressed will of God in our lives, we are committing treason. Treason. We're at war. You're assaulting God's position. You're claiming mastery. You're claiming the same turf He claims. And as a result, there's a war. You see that? I would say that from my understanding of history, as limited as it is, and being somewhat a student of wars, most wars operate like this. The war always has two parts. One side is warring unjustly and using force unjustly, and one side is using force justly. One side is the aggressor, and one side is simply standing up for what's right. Now, it's not always perfect, but by and large, usually one party tends to be the aggressor. And you want to know what's interesting? The aggressor has always used propaganda to convince itself internally that it's really the defendant. That's how the Nazis spoke to themselves about their war against Poland and particularly against the whole Jewish race. You can even see it in the way the Iraqis talk to themselves about why they invaded Kuwait. It's always the same. The aggressor, the one warring unjustly, sits there and says, it's really your fault. You're the one that's causing this war. You're out to get me. You're causing my problems. You're threatening me. And if I don't make a move, I don't claim the kingship. If I don't claim this territory, then you're going to wipe me out. So what do they do? They say, it's really your fault. You caused this war. I'm the victim here. You're out to get me. And that's the reason why we can invade and rape and pillage all of your villages. That's the reason why we can do it, because it's really your fault. Nothing original about that. But it's really your fault, not my fault. My friends, you don't really know your own heart unless you realize that that is our attitude toward God often. 
when we claim the mastery of our lives, when we claim the kingship of our lives, when we insist that all we're doing is taking what is right because after all, God is out to get us, that's how it started. Do you know why Adam and Eve disobeyed God? The serpent came and lied to them, and that's called propaganda. He began a campaign of propaganda. And the serpent came and said, Has God told you not to touch the tree that's in the midst of the garden? God's out to get you. He's trying to smother you. He's trying to keep you from achieving all you can be and having your best life now. He's trying to hold you down. You have desires in you. You have aspirations in you. And he's keeping you from them with all of his laws. God doesn't desire your best. If you obey everything God did... You will never be all you're meant to be. God does not really love you. God does not want your joy. God does not want your fulfillment. Seize the day. Create your own reality. After all, you have a right to do what you want. It's your life. It's your life. That is propaganda. In other words, it's your fault, God. It's your fault. That is exactly what happened. In Genesis 3, God shows up and he sees Adam and Eve and everything is in shambles. They feel fear on the inside. They know their bodies are falling apart. They know their relationships are falling apart. Everything's falling apart because they're estranged from God. And when you're estranged from God, you're estranged from everything else. And when God comes to them each individually and says, what happened? She says, why did you let that snake in here? It's your fault. That's what she said. And when he comes to the man and says, uh, well, Adam says, it was this woman you gave me. And so Adam's got a double, a double victimology thing going on here. It, it's the woman. First, it's her fault. Second, it's your fault because you gave her to me. So my problems are your fault. We rebel against God. We're defending ourselves by saying you're out to get us. And unless you understand that deep in your heart that lie has sunk. It's what we call our sinful nature. And what do you think your sinful nature is? It's a belief. It's a character. It's character assassination against God. It's propaganda that says, he doesn't love me, he's out to get me. I have to be in charge of my own life, or he'll smother me, or he'll limit my potential and growth. He doesn't love me, he doesn't care for me. That's propaganda. And then saying back to him, it's your fault. And that lie has sunk into our hearts from the beginning, and it's still operating. Now let's look at two different kinds of people. I need you to listen a little faster so we can get done. Two different kinds of people. And some of you fit into these categories. Some of you are the kind of people who move to a place like Las Vegas out of a very traditional background and say, finally, I'm going to be able to party. All the restraints are gone. There's no mom. There's no dad. There's none of that narrow, traditional home. There's none of that church I used to go to that was way too confining. Traditional morality is too confining. I'm free. I'm going to do what I feel is right for me. Party. That's what I'm going to do. But on the other hand, you have a person who's very, very devout. Very moral. 
but yet at the same time always feeling really badly about himself or herself, always feeling down, feeling unworthy, anxious, discouraged. Do you know what those two have in common? One is very moral and the other is very immoral, but you know what they have in common? They both believe the lie that God doesn't love them and God is not out for them. The first person says, I feel sexual feelings. I feel and if I don't give in to that, I'm going to lose out. I'm going to miss life. Over here is a person who says, God doesn't love me. He doesn't really forgive me. I'm too unworthy. I try and I try and I try, but my life still isn't getting any better. It doesn't go well. Both are believing the lie. They're both saying, God, it's your fault, and you're out to get me. You're out to get me. It's a paranoia. It will destroy you. And they're both saying it. Whether they're doing it through a devout moral position or a pagan position, they're both basically admitting how much at war with God they are. And they're at war with God because they're saying, it's all your fault. You're stifling me. You're stifling me. Now, the moral person won't admit that a lot of their anxiety, a lot of their depression, a lot of their feeling of unworthiness is really anger. The pagan people will admit that usually. Why God does not let the things, or why does God let the things happen that he lets happen? You're mad sort of overtly. Over here you're mad sort of covertly. You're mad consciously. You're mad unconsciously. You're mad because you all believe the same thing and it's propaganda. It's his fault and you're claiming the right to be your own king and then there's a war. And if there's a, an aggressor who has to war unjustly, there's always somebody who has to war justly. If you're attacked, if justice is trampled on, then the other side has to go to war to stand up for what's right. Therefore, the Bible says the reason we need to be reconciled with God is that there needs to be a two-way reconciliation. Two-way. Not only does our heart need to be turned, but God's heart needs to be turned. Why? Because God has a problem with us too. And it's not like our problem with Him. Our problem with Him is an emotional one. His is a legal one. He's not vindictive or vengeful. He is superior to us. Could have wiped us out a long time ago. But what He has done in His restraint is that He has passed sentence on us. He said, if you want to rule, if you want to rule outside the garden, you can serve in the garden or you can rule in the desert. It's your choice, one or the other. You can go out estranged from each other, estranged from nature, estranged from your body, your soul, from everything. Out you go. And His wrath lies upon us, the Bible says, and He's put a sentence already upon us. Well, how is it possible to be reconciled? Enoch walked with God, and it, there had to be a time when he was at war with God. You have to go back because Abel and Enoch and Abraham all knew the promise God gave to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't know much either, except that God came to Adam and Eve and said, You're out in the desert. I'm putting a sword in the front of the garden. The cherubim have flaming swords. You can't come back in. You're under the sentence of death. You have to be cut off. That's your penalty. But I will send someone, and he will be bruised, and he will be wounded, and he will get you back in the garden. All Enoch knew, 
Abraham knew, all Abel knew, all Noah knew, was that somehow God was going to send somebody who was going to get wounded and hurt, and that would be the way in. But we know, don't we? We know. Think of the faith they had just in that. Do you know what we know? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to the end, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying here? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against it. Put it this way, both sides of this this war, fighting against each other, struggling against each other, both sides converged on the figure hanging on the cross. Both of us emptied all our ammunition, emptied all of our our warfare uh, instruments, both of us converged on him and blasted him to pieces. And that's what the Bible says. God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. He made him sin who knew no sin. Don't you see both sides? God came in with legal justice and he made Jesus Christ into a desert. He cut him off. He turned his back on him and he descended into utter spiritual darkness. But not only did God get his part of the war on him, we did too. If you look at the attitude of the people who were there during the crucifixion, we see people mocking him because we're our own kings. We're threatened by real kings, and when we can get our hands on someone who threatens the control of our own lives, that's exactly what we do. They mocked him. They mocked him. They speared him. Both sides converged on him. And as a result, we're told that God has poured out all of his penalty on him. Now somebody says, why does God have to do that? Why does he have to pour out his penalty? Because it's justice. It's justice. One side is warring unjustly, one side is warring justly. If you went to court because somebody wouldn't pay you some large sum of money and the judge says, well, can't you just forget that and go on and live? You'd say, because I want justice. You can't have social order. You can't just say, let's forget all the debts to the law. You can't even have a society. In the same way, do you want God to be less than just than your local circuit court judge? God is just. He had to do something. You can't discard that sentence, and he didn't. He poured it out. When Paul says, be reconciled, do you know what it means? Here's what has to happen for reconciliation to occur. First, you have to admit you have been at war with God. Have you ever admitted that? I have been at war with God. I have certainly blamed him for my life. I have certainly refused, either overtly or covertly, to follow his commands. And secondly, you have to admit that not only have you been at war with God unjustly, you have to admit that he's been at war with you justly. That he has a right to cast us out. And not until we see these two things and admit these two things, will we suddenly find that what Jesus did on the cross affects us deeply. Do you see the logic of it? 
If there's anybody who, here who says, I don't believe I'm mad at God. I don't believe God is that unhappy. I don't believe that. I'm really just trying to lead my life, and I'm trying to, to do a, a coup attempt. I don't believe I'm revolting against him. I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think he's that unhappy with me. But when you, but when you look at the cross, you will never walk, walk with God upon the basis of it. It won't move you, it won't thrill you, it won't melt you, it won't change you, it won't, won't make your heart go out to Him. You can be moral, you can believe, you can believe all the doctrines, but if you don't believe you're at war with God unjustly, and if you don't believe God is at war with you justly, and if you don't admit that, you'll never, ever, ever see what He did for you, and it won't change you, and it won't bring you out. This is what happens to a person when you admit the warfare, you see what Jesus did. You have your heart changed. You go out to him and do what Adam and Eve should have done. You run out and you say, oh, my Lord, something has happened to me. My heart is dark. I can't see. Everything's falling apart. I can hardly see you. Will you help me? Will you take my hand? Will you walk with me? Adam and Eve refused to admit that they were at war with God. And so when he came and offered them help, all they did say was, you're out to get me. Don't be like them. Be reconciled. Walk with God. But that's not all we're promised. There's one more thing we're promised. Walking with God is not just being at peace with God objectively. It is enjoying peace with God. Walking with God is not just the objective. The Bible tells us when we receive Christ as our Savior, our warfare is ended, we're at peace with God, our sentence is put behind us, we're now acceptable in His sight, our sins can no longer bring us into condemnation, therefore now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Walking with God is step by step, bit by bit. It is taking that peace with Him and working it into your life. It's practicing peace. But that leads me to the last thing I want to talk about as far as Enoch is going. I want to talk about walking in the presence of God. The Bible tells us the objective will become subjective, that is, what is outside of us will become a power within us on how much we're willing to walk. And the word walk is used very often in the Bible, and even today people use it in contradistinction to talk. Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Don't just believe it, live it out. And if you do live it out, God will actually do for you what he did for Enoch. He will bear witness with our spirit that he is pleased. And we will feel his presence. You're probably not a Christian unless you feel something of his presence. And the thing that made Enoch so amazing was he seemed to have it all the time. Because we have peace with God we can actually begin to have the reversal of the curse and start to actually sense and feel the presence of God when we pray and when we walk with Him. Let me ask you a question. Do you sense or feel the presence of God with you? Do you walk with God? Do you feel His pleasure? Do you feel a sense of His presence? Enoch did. Enoch enjoyed walking with God because he knew the war was over. And he knew that God's promises are true. 
We walk every day on the razor's edge between two incredible possibilities. We long to be reunited with our Maker, and yet at the same time, we find ourselves at times still at war with Him. But the objective today is don't follow God so far off. Practice the peace you have. Practice the objective and you'll know the subjective. If you sink yourself down into the reconciliation you have in Christ and you meditate upon it and you realize what God did to save you, to turn you around and bring you back to himself, there flows from that a joy that is indescribable and a desire to spend time with him. Do you do that? Do you long for the presence of God? Do you read your Bible as if God is speaking to you? Do you spend time in prayer and, and, and sense the sweetness of his presence and the sense that he commends you? Because you can live in a desert or you can live in the garden where he walks with you in the cool of the day. And at the end of the day, it's what you choose to do. If your children looked at you as their father or mother, would they say, my mom and dad, dad walk with God? And they have a sense of the awe and presence of God in their lives. Can people say that about you? Do they see that about you? Do they sense that about you? My wife and I were praying in the car on the way. If you ever see that, we're not fighting, we're praying. We're not talking to each other, we're talking to Jesus. Every time you see us in the car talking, we're not fighting, right? We're praying. And my wife prayed a beautiful prayer for someone who's coming to visit us, probably, who's not a believer, and she just asked that Jesus would make the sense of his awesome presence a reality for this person to see as they are with us. Now, how's that going to happen? Strictly by faith. The more we walk with God, the more we spend time with God enjoying Him and the peace He's given to us. He's not angry at us. And you no longer have to be angry at Him. You can love on Him and He can love on you. And when you do that, there is a, I don't know how to put it, it washes over you a sense of God's presence. Now I'm not talking about some sort of noumenal, mystical, spiritual high. I'm talking about the reality of God's presence. And you know what? Everybody in this room is hungry for that. That's what you really, really crave and want. And that's what we're going to get when Christ returns. But Enoch got a lot of it. But if we don't have the subjective sense of walking with God, it's simply because we're not practicing in our prayer, in our private, in our public, the peace we have. And if there's anybody here who doesn't believe they're at war with God, let me tell you, life is a walk. And every action you take is leading you somewhere. That's why it's called a walk. You're either going in the direction of going back into the garden because Christ has healed you and the door is open, or you're leave, living east of Eden in the desert, and it doesn't matter how moral you are. You can be moral and still be your master. But I implore you, as Paul implored the church at Corinth and the church at Colossae and the church at Ephesus, be reconciled to God.